Hey guys, wanted to invite you to the Awaken Conference, Memorial Day weekend, May 23rd through 25th in 2020. We are bringing it back. Thousands of young adults are gonna gather in this city, Dallas, Texas, to be a part of a weekend where we awaken to the movement you were made for, which is the church. To be a part of that weekend, to find out all that'll be involved, you can go to awaken.live and sign up. You don't wanna miss it and we hope to see you there. Welcome, friends in the room, friends in Fort Worth, Houston, El Paso, Phoenix, Cedar Rapids, Fayetteville, Arkansas, Philadelphia. Um, hey, let me get this out of the way. I'm sitting on a chair. Um, I woke up this morning and I felt great. Super excited, last sports of the year. Got to work, which is here, and started throwing up for the last 12 hours. So I went and got an IV drip and uh, was hoping that would, would work. So tonight could be interesting or short. And, uh, but I did not want to miss out on the last thing of the year. And um, I think God has something really fun and really in store for us. We know that 2 Corinthians chapter 12, thank you, verse 9 and 10 says that his power is made perfect in weakness. And so if anything, this is just a discomfortable advantage in God speaking and showing up here tonight. We know there's an enemy who hates the passage that I'm about to read, who hates just what's taking place in this room. And... Um, but at the same time, if you see me dash off or side stage, I'll call somebody up up here and we'll just keep worshiping. So, hey, I'm gonna read in Matthew chapter one as we wrap up this series, Bloodline. Matthew chapter one, if you have a Bible, you can flip open to Matthew chapter one. I'm gonna start in verse one. If you don't have it, it'll be up on the screen. And, um, and we are gonna look at the final week of the bloodline of Jesus, where it says this, verse one. This is a record or a genealogy of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, so it just lists out, hey, here's the people in Jesus' family tree. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. What a great name, dude. Your child is named Ram. That guy, he was yoked for sure. Ram <laughs> was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother had been Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz, the worst king in Israel's history. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, second worst king, or most evil king, Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amnon. Amnon was the father of, or Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiachin and his brothers born at the time of exile. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Sheatel. Sheatel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Buid. <laughs> we're just gonna go with Abe. Abe was the father of Eliakim. 
Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zodok. Zodok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer was the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Hey, I'm gonna pray one last time. I'd love you to pray wherever you're at, uh, and I don't think I've ever asked you to do this, but um, just for me to be clear, for this to come out, and for God to uh, minister to all of us as we unpack some incredible truths from the line, the bloodline of Jesus. So I'm gonna give you a second, just where you're at, pray that God speak to you, and pray that, um, man, uh, just health, selfishly, I'd love you to just say a prayer that I'd be able to get through this. And so I'll give you a second and pray there, and then I'll pray. Father, I thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for just the work that you're doing in their life, that you want to do in their life, the finished work that you did on the cross for them and for their life. As we talk about the bloodline of our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus, our King, would you just illumine our minds to the incredible people that you instructed Matthew to include and the story, and the story it tells us about our story. We love you. Amen. Um, so what I have up here is a Christmas tree. Uh, and it is not just any Christmas tree. There's a lot of Christmas trees all throughout Watermark as they kind of get ready for the holidays. This is a um, real Christmas tree. By show of hands, who in this room grew up and you had a real Christmas tree? That's what you did. You didn't play that fake game. You had a real Christmas tree. Just raise them high. Hey, even the guys. It's okay. And yeah, Okay. Who had, there's like different levels. Who was in a family? Was anyone in a family where you guys, every time the holidays came around, you didn't just go to Home Depot and buy the real Christmas tree. You guys went like camping. And you went out and you found that tree and you chopped it down yourself and this was a part of your family tradition. Anyone in here? Yeah, there you go. Man, you, if you were a lady, your dad just set the bar so high for the fellas in here. Because that is, that is manly. Who had a real Christmas tree, but it was what I would call the frosted mini wheats version of a Christmas tree, where it was like white on the outside as though you lived in Vermont. Anybody have that? Okay, there's like a couple of you. Always confused by that one, because even in Vermont, where the trees do get snow on that, no one has a tree like that inside of their house. I'm not exactly sure why, but there's like a cult following. There's like a, a group that does that. All right, so there's all the live Christmas, or the real Christmas trees. Who in this room had a fake Christmas tree growing up? You think it's irresponsible? Yeah, you were in the majority. In fact, there's like 80 plus percent of Americans that do not do the real tree anymore, that a vast majority of people um, do the fake tree. I and my family, we do the real tree because we're Christians. And so <laughs> we, I'm just kidding, good grief, I'm sick. I'm gonna blame everything on the sickness, save the email. We do a real tree, so we go out and this is actually a real tree. And sometimes people will call a real tree something that it's not. And they'll say, hey, do you do a live tree? This happened this past week. Hey, do you do a, a live tree or a fake tree? And people unknowingly kind of just slip of the tongue, it happens. But one thing that is very clear about this tree, despite the fact that it is a real Christmas tree, it is not alive. The moment that it was separated from its root system at whatever farm out there, these guys' manly dad chopped it down, <laughs> it was dead. And it is no longer alive. And that kind of goes without saying, like, why are you telling us this? It, it can appear on the outside. If you look at it, you may go like, oh, maybe that thing could be alive. If I saw it outside and I didn't know what was at the base, I could be like, oh, I think that thing is alive. 
But when you get close to it, you realize it's been chopped off. It's without question dead, despite the fact that on the outside, it still looks very close to what it did when it was alive. What does it have to do with what we're talking about tonight? The Bible says that when sin entered the world, everything was placed underneath the curse of death. And if you've ever read the Bible and you hear verses like, man, and death entered and everything died and everything's been dead ever since, and you look at it, you can find yourself, or I can find myself going like, everything died? Really? Everything was broken and put under the curse of death? Like, I know lots of people, they look very much alive. I got, you know, a dog looks very much alive. Got trees in the backyard, look very much alive. Everything was put underneath the curse of death in the same way that it's hard to tell right now, is this alive or dead? The longer time goes on, like when we get to January 1st or January 2nd, this thing will not look like this anymore. It's gonna look like droopy all the way down and any ornaments that were a part of it are totally pulling it down. These are just gonna fall off and it'll be increasingly clear, oh, that thing has been, it was dead, it is dead, and it's clear to see it's dead. So it is in this life. The Bible says everything placed under the curse of sin. And in a moment, you may go like, really? Is everything underneath the curse of sin, which means the curse of death, it kind of can seem like it's alive, and then the longer and older you get, you just bump into realities that are part of our broken world that are reminders of everything is underneath the fall. Whatever dog you have, your dog ends up dying. Whatever uh, person or family you're a part of, you are going to bury your parents or they're gonna bury you. Whoever you marry someday, you're gonna bury them or they're going to bury you, most likely. That you just intersect and we're confronted with the fact that this world is broken and not as it should be. And when you try to come up with a solution or a remedy on like, how do I reconcile that? And uh, what does that tell me? And what's a worldview that I should approach that with? There's a lot of different ways that you could think about addressing the brokenness of sin and the reality of things like greed and murder and school shootings and just tragic things, cancer. Things that if you were creating a world, you would never come up with. And the Bible gives a solution. It gives both the answers to why those things exist. We've covered that in the series, but it also does what no other religion does, provides a solution for the remedy of those things. And that remedy came in the person of Jesus. We're about to celebrate Christmas. All together, you're gonna see tons of different things that kind of fill the streets and fill different legacy strip malls and different lights that all celebrate this Christmas time. But Christmas was God bringing about and introducing to the world the remedy for the brokenness that here is here. So as we walk through some of the uh, things that are in Jesus' genealogy, I just wanna pull out three really fast things. It's gonna be a shorter message tonight. But I think they answer some of the biggest questions that not only every other world religion fails to answer, because they all claim that you can fix the problems in our world if you just try harder, or you can have a relationship with God if you just do enough good things. Christianity doesn't claim that. It claims something entirely different. So I'm gonna start and just highlight some of the verses back in verse one of chapter one and, uh, and point them out. Because a lot of times when I read genealogies, it's like, what in the world? This, uh, skip, move on. Until you have enough time and space to study it and really evaluate what is being said and why does Matthew include the things that he does here. Genealogies in the ancient time, here's what they would have been. They were a big deal. They were like a resume. So not a really big deal to us. You got Ancestry.com. You show up at your job and you're like, look at all these people. They're like, we don't care. Get your job done. But in this time, it was a really big deal to have a genealogy. Only kings or people of great esteem would have a genealogy. And inside of the genealogy, you would often include very intentionally not some of the worst parts of your family past. You would conveniently skip over those. If you read like Caesars, you remember some of the ancient kings, they have genealogies and they would like skip hundreds of years. 
where you're like, I'm pretty sure there was something that happened there. But they would skip them because they didn't want to include some of the worst parts of their story. And they would include the best parts of their story always. But Matthew's genealogy is incredibly different from that. So in verse one, I'll highlight just the first idea just really quickly, the fastest of all three. It says this, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. The word Messiah means deliverer. This is a record of Jesus, the deliverer that God would send to this world. It means the anointed deliverer that God would raise up. Do you know what the word Jesus means? God saves. Even the name and the words Jesus, hey, Jesus the Messiah, are almost redundant. Matthew is driving home, and the title and even the name that Jesus is given, the word Jesus is the word Yeshua, which means God is salvation. God is the one who saves. The solution that God introduced into the world was not some religious experience or some list of do's and don'ts. It was a solution that you and I need a savior. Christianity does not express that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, so just try to do good things. It expresses that everyone that ever lived and lives and is alive is a messed up person who doesn't deserve to have a relationship with God. But there's a savior that showed up and he gives forgiveness to anyone who will just by faith receive it. It doesn't teach that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. It teaches saved or forgiven people go to heaven. And the only way to get forgiveness is through Jesus and what he did. God sent a savior, which is distinctly, radically different. And you may not be a Christian, because a lot of times holidays, just different people will uh, show up, or there'll be a part of, of nights like tonight where you may have walked in here and you don't have a Christian faith, you don't have any faith, you're just figuring this whole thing out. One thing that is abundantly clear if you do any amount of study as it relates to the major world religions, Christianity is in a category all by itself. All the other world religions are, hey, do these five things. You need to pray five times a day. Here's the different pillars. Here's the things God wants. Gotta make sure you're circumcised. There's a covenant relationship that God has. You go through Buddhism, Islam, Muslim, or I'm sorry, Islam, which is Muslims. You go through any of the major world religions, Hinduism. None of them put forward the picture that Jesus does. Everybody's messed up. And the good news is I came to be God who saves. That's what Jesus means. God who delivers. So that verse reads, the beginning genealogy of the God who saves, who delivers his people. The second idea I wanna pull out comes from the people that Jesus included. Not only did Jesus include some of the worst parts, he included something very unusual, which was women. At that time, it was a patriarchal society, and um, you would not include women in the genealogy because the bloodline and rights and estate passed through the men. And Matthew doesn't just include women, he goes out of his way to include specific women. So let me read the verses again. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. This is verse two. Why did he include that phrase? I just wanna highlight, like some of the stuff Matthew does here is very intentional. He's communicating a message, and I'm gonna explain what I mean by that in a second. But this is the first one, that as it relates to Jesus' family tree, he goes in and says, hey, you know who God chose? Judah was one of 12 brothers. He had 12 brothers, 11 others, or I'm sorry, 11 brothers, and then there's Judah. And all of them, you know, some of them were not so bad, some of them were not good at all, and then there was one really good guy named Joseph. And Jesus, or God, when it came to, here's who the blood, the savior of the world is gonna come through. He's the superhero of the Bible, Jesus. And God looked down and he chose, out of all the 12 brothers, that were the grandchildren of Abraham, who am I gonna choose? And he chose Judah. What do we know about Judah? 
Judah had a couple things. If you were to look at, at his life, Judah, there was a time where his brothers came around, and there's 12 of them. And remember, I said Joseph was kind of like the favorite. He was dad's favorite. He was a kid who got straight A's in school. He was like the star of the community. And his brothers hated him for it. And one day, they were like, hey, we should kill him. He's dad's favorite. I'm so done with him. And, um, and one of the brothers says, no, let's not kill him. Let's sell him as a slave. And so they take their brother, they throw him in a pit, and they sell him as a slave. And Judah and his brothers go and they kill a lamb and they take his brother's jacket and they rub it in this blood and they bring it back to their dad and they say, Joseph is dead. And for 20 years, they carried that lie. 20 years, Judah carried that lie. Who makes up the family tree of Jesus? Liars. If that wasn't bad enough, you look at the next passage or the next verse that's in there where it talks about Judah's kids. And I don't know if you caught this, but it says this. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. This is one of the more shocking, crazy stories. I'm talking like Game of Thrones stories in the Old Testament. Here's what happened. So Judah, he's got some sons. He was married, and and he had these three boys. And eventually his wife dies, but he's still got these three kids. His kids grow up. One of them's named Er, E-R. And he decides, hey, I'm going to get this boy a wife. So he goes out. He gets Tamar. Tamar and Er get married. Er, we're told, was also not a good guy and so wicked that it just says God killed him. So, you know, there you go. There's food for thought. He was so wicked that God put an end to him. And, you know, it's what you do. He made you. You can do that. So anyways, in that culture, uh, the brother would then marry the, or the wife of his person. I know that's crazy and weird and really uncomfortable to think about, but that was just normal at that time. And Abraham went and basically said, hey, I'm not going to give you my son, but someday when my other son gets old enough, you know, I'll come back and we're gonna get you married, Tamar. And Tamar's going like, who's gonna provide for me? And he was like, just go back and live with your family and your parents and I'll come get you whenever um, my youngest son gets of age. Again, it's so creepy and weird to think about, but that was the story. And Tamar's over there living life and she's with her parents. She's like, yeah, I'm here. Abe's gonna come get me whenever things, when uh, the young boy gets of age. And it never happens. And so she's left and he gives that other child away and he gets married. And she's left going, what do I do? So she dresses up as a prostitute, and she goes up on the road. She knows that Judah was out, and he was in heat, and uh, she posed on the side of the road as a prostitute. She totally veiled herself, and Judah goes, and he has sex with his daughter-in-law, whose husband was dead, his wife was dead. Doesn't make it any less creepy. In his defense, she was dressed as a prostitute, but whenever your defense includes, well, she was dressed as a prostitute, it's not a great defense to stand on. And time goes on, and three months, we're told, go by, and she's pregnant with her father-in-law's baby, babies. And Judah, before he knew it was his babies, he finds out that, hey, your daughter-in-law has been sleeping around, unfaithful, and he's like, we need to bring her into the city square and burn her alive. That's what he responds with. And then she shows up and says, hey, with the man whose staff I took whenever we were sleeping together, this is the father of the children. And Abraham realized, that's my staff. Oh, no. I'm in trouble and everything's fine. We'll get a game plan in place. But this was the person. So not only do you have that added, you've got incest. In the family line, this was one of the more uncomfortable, scandalous parts of the line of Jesus. So when you look at who's up in a part of the family tree of Jesus, you got a liar, you got an incest. What happens next? We're told that Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab had a stigma and a nickname attached to her. Anybody know what Rahab? If you grew up in Sunday school like me, you know this. You saw it on the felt board. And it was Rahab the 
prostitute. She wasn't just a prostitute. She was a foreign, a Canaanite, which basically was a big deal back then that um, the Jewish mindset was, hey, God loves the Jews and he's really focused about us and give me a J, give me an E, give me a W. That's who God is all about. And so to have a foreigner was not a great thing, but let alone a foreigner who is a prostitute. If you read the story of Jesus, or sorry, the story of Joshua, that Rahab was this prostitute in this foreign city that God just showed favor on. And not just favor in that he allowed her to live. You can go read the story later. Favor in that he said, she is gonna be the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus, the savior of the world. Let me hit pause. Think about that. If you were Matthew and you're writing this and you're going out of your way to include Rahab, the prostitute, I mean, think about how comfortable. How uncomfortable would you be if this Thanksgiving, maybe some of you guys are dating, you're going over to their house, you're gonna go meet the family, it's gonna be really, you know, it's a big deal, and here we go, we're meeting the family, and while you're hanging out, the family pulls out like the family lineage book and some pictures of grandma and great-grandma and all the different stuff, and you're going through it, and they go out of their way to highlight like, oh, and this is, uh, this is Beverly, she was the prostitute. Uh, she was, <laughs> she wasn't just any prostitute, she was good at what she did. I mean, she, she made it rain, okay? And uh, you would go, okay, I'm so uncomfortable right now, and I don't know if he's weird or if just everyone here is weird. Um, that's what Matthew's doing. He's going out of his way to say, <laughs> you remember Rahab, a prostitute. That was grandma. That's who's a part of Jesus' family tree. So just add prostitution to the list. And then last week, we covered a story of David. And I, dude, the shade that Matthew throws at David in this moment is tremendous. Because look, but he's doing it intentionally. He says this, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Matthew, why are you bringing up former marriages right now? Why would you feel like you need to introduce that? If you were here last week, you heard that David had the moment in his life that was the worst moment of his life where he decided, after going out on the rooftop, being in a place he shouldn't have been, he looks across, sees a naked woman bathing on the rooftop, probably also not a great thing for her to be doing, and he decides, I wanna sleep with her. He goes and gets her, and he's told, hey, that's, that's Uriah's wife. Like, Uriah's one of your best friends. He's one of your, your mighty men, they're called. And David says, I don't care. Goes and sleeps with her, thought it would just be some one night stand. Oh no, finds out she's pregnant. And he decides, I'm gonna get my boy Uriah, he's gonna come home, and Uriah, hey, good game. I'm gonna let you go hang out with your wife for a night, hoping they would sleep together, because that's what you do if you've been gone for a while. And Uriah says, all of my men are fighting at war, I'm not going anywhere. And David's like, oh, okay, cool. And he tries to get him drunk, and he's like, hey, just another one on me, it's okay, the palace has got it. And he gets Uriah drunk, but his integrity is so great, Uriah, that he just sleeps on the doorstep of the palace, says, I'm not going home. My men can't, so I'm not. And David realizes his plan to cover up that adultery, to make Uriah think, oh, that's his baby boy, it's not gonna work. So he decides that one of his best friends would just be a casualty, and he tries to cover up that sin. And he sends word, Uriah, go back to the troops who are at war, and he says, I want you to take Uriah, he writes to the commander, Put him where the fighting is fiercest. And then with a signal from you, pull everyone back but Uriah. Certain death. And it happened. And Bathsheba, the pregnancy takes place. She's pregnant with David's baby. And God says, the baby's not going to live. And Bathsheba ends up becoming a, uh, one of the David's wives. But he had several wives. But when God said, who is going to be the great-great-grandmother of the Savior of the world, Jesus, he didn't choose Michael which was another of his wives. He didn't choose, um, he chose Bathsheba. 
a woman who had been, and Matthew goes out of his way to go, and remember, just so that we're all on the same page, she had been Uriah's wife. This never should have happened. But that's the woman who God said, these will be the two. That's Solomon's mama. And then he includes Solomon. So not only do you add, when you add David to the list and you add Bathsheba to the list, you gotta add murder, you gotta add adultery. Like the list and the family lineage of Jesus, Matthew is highlighting very intentionally in a way that no other lineage in the Bible does. No other place do they go out of the way to be like, whose mother had been Bathsheba or Uriah's wife. Like he's highlighting it. And then you go to Solomon, and we're told in the next verse, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. What do we know about Solomon? Solomon started off well, as we covered in Rated Off a Romance, but he went on and chased one sex relationship after the next, and eventually, under what, by any standard of definition today, we would call a sex addict. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which basically was like, hey, you don't get the rights of a wife, but I get the rights to your body. A thousand people. And Solomon, this polygamist, possibly sex addict, would be further. David had several children, and God said, that one. And Matthew doesn't want you to miss the point. And then you keep going, and the stories and the people, like we could go over Ahaz, I said earlier, Ahaz, you know what Ahaz was most famous for as a king? He burned his son alive because he worshiped foreign gods. Ahaz was known as the worst king in Israel. Jacob, the son originally of Isaac, who stole the birthright. Every turn that you look, Matthew is communicating. I mean, if you look over at Jesus' family, all of it is so jacked up. Why would you, Matthew, go out of your way to point out, hey, the prostitute, and you know that guy, he was incest. I mean, that's just gross. And then the murder, he had adultery. Why would you go out of your way, Matthew, to do this? Because Matthew knew those were the point of the gospel he was about to write. That's the point of Christianity. Jesus came from sinners, and he came for sinners, because everyone is a sinner out there. Everyone is so broken and in need of someone to save themselves. And Matthew knew, I'm including these because they are the point of the story I'm about to write. Further, here's why I think Matthew included it. You know what each one of those have in common? Each one of those people, you got you know, Rahab the prostitute, you got Ruth the Moabitess, which means she's a foreigner. Jesus was a mutt, he was not purebred. You got uh, Judah the liar and the coward. Jacob the thief. Each one of them has a stigma and a label attached to it, and you know who also had a stigma and a label attached to him? Matthew. Matthew, before we met Jesus, was known as Matthew the tax collector. And then he meets Jesus, and he starts a relationship with this guy who changed everything. And so Matthew, when it came to writing, I mean, he knew that this new relationship that he had to Jesus totally redefined what defined him. He was no longer a tax collector. In other words, tax collector, there's not a really modern-day equivalent of what a tax collector is, because that doesn't mean much to us, other than nobody's like, I love the IRS. But in that day, it wasn't just the IRS. It was the IRS meets the mafia meets like a pimp. There isn't a modern equivalent to it, but they were hated by everyone. To be a tax collector meant you had to abandon religion. You were basically like, you know, God, if he's Israel, don't care about him at all. And Matthew was sitting there at a tax booth, collecting money. He had the right to take as much money as he wanted from anybody. And sitting in a tax booth, we're told that Jesus walks up and he says, I haven't given up on you. You may have given up on God. I don't care about your past. I don't care about your present. I care about the ways that it's impacting you and hurting you and things like that. But it's not going to keep me from wanting a relationship with you. And Matthew knew that the labels the world had assigned him, his past would have given him, 
were all redefined by his relationship with Jesus. Every person we just listed out has been redefined, not by the labels that the world, Rahab has gone down in history as not a woman who slept around and is a prostitute. The most famous title she holds is she is the grandmother of Jesus. Your relationship with Christ redefines and trumps any other worldly definition or stigma or anything from your past because Christ, the third idea, redefines what defines us. When you become in Christ or you put your faith as a Christian in him, anything the world attaches to you, all of your past, anything that you attach, man, I'm damaged goods. I'm someone who committed an abortion or had an abortion. I'm someone who pushed my girlfriend to have an abortion. I am a porn addict. I am a thief and a liar. I'm someone who has totally abandoned my family. I don't even have the ability to save face when I go home because of all the different ways that I've hurt people in my hometown and I'm ashamed. And Matthew would say, the reason I included all of the dysfunction and brokenness in the family tree is because that's the point. No matter how far you feel like you are from God, he hasn't stopped pursuing you. His mission was to come from sinners because he came for sinners and everybody is a sinner. On mine, if I was to add some of mine to the list, what would represent some of the things that Jesus came and he hung for me? It would be pornography, lust, fear of man, all these different things that I would hang on my family tree, if you will, or just the tree of my life, anger, sexual sin with past relationships. I don't know what would be on your tree. Greed and a thousand other things that could mark. And Matthew included these people because he knew they were the point. Jesus and all of the brokenness of his family tree came and he hung on a tree for them and for you and for anyone who would trust in him and even those who don't. And in doing so, he redefines and he changes every label that's out there. And it's no longer pornography, it's loved. It's no longer adultery, it's clean. It's no longer theft, it's forgiven. It's no longer fear of man, it's alive. It's no longer sexual sin, it's restored. It's no longer anger, it's righteousness. Whatever label that you carry, if you are in Christ, and as crazy as you think that is, spiritually speaking, the Bible says you have been redefined. No matter what your present sin struggle is, no matter what your past sin struggle is, all of it has been redefined because of a relationship that you have with Christ. Every single year, you know what's interesting? We do something at Christmas time. We're about to enter into it, like I said, and there's a tradition that kind of marks society where we take things and we hang them on a tree. And whether or not society ever realizes it, they're doing that in a season that is devoted to the birth of a Messiah who came and hung on a tree. I hope you never look at ornaments the same way again. Every ornament out there that sits and it hangs on a tree is all about a celebration of the birth of Christ who came and was hung on a tree for you and for me, was hung on a tree for all of the brokenness and messed up stuff inside of his life. And the tree that defines humanity doesn't have to be the original tree in the Garden of Eden. Like, think about it. Like, Jesus' family tree is jacked up. It's messed up. Just like your tree is messed up. And my family tree is messed up. And my heart is messed up. And your heart is messed up. And it honestly makes sense that his tree would be so broken. Because it was at a tree that our world became so broken. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin was introduced, 
And the message of the gospel and the message really of Christmas, which doesn't have to be celebrated on December 25th, it's celebrated every single day, is that one has come who was born to die in our place, to hang on a tree. And what defines us is not the tree from the garden where sin was introduced, but a tree that was made into a cross where our Messiah, our Savior, the Son of David, Jesus, the God who saves, was crucified for you and for me. You were handed, when you walked in this room, an ornament. And here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you a chance for the next few minutes. I just want you to write out one of the millions of different sins that are inside of your life that Jesus hung on that cross for. You should have been given a Sharpie and there's about 1,800 and about 3,000, so there's gonna be some passing around. And I wanna challenge you, like you can write on anything. You, let's be honest, if you're going like, oh man, it's really hard for me to think of, I'm, I'm concerned about you because today there were probably a million sins that were committed in my heart and my mind. But you write out any of them, anger, resentment, bitterness. Some of you, I wanna challenge you, whatever the one that you're thinking, oh, I don't wanna write that because I'm with these people, what are they? you should probably write that one. It's through stories that God sets people free. And we're gonna give you a chance, and then we're gonna have a chance for you, once you write that down, to just go hang. And we're gonna hang on trees all throughout this lobby, or all throughout this worship center, sins that Jesus already hung from, or already hung for on a tree. And those things don't define us anymore, and when you put them on that tree, it's almost a symbolic representation of this doesn't define me. The other tree, the tree that was made to a cross does. And so I can put this on here, and hang up whatever sin is there because there's one who already hung for me. We're gonna have a chance over the next five to eight minutes, the band is gonna play and then I'm gonna come close this out. But right now, write it down and then you can just go to this trees all throughout here, there's 10 and we're gonna leave them there. It's just a testimony. God, this is the way that you worked in our life. And these don't define me, you do.
guys. Check, check. You guys keep keep going, keep putting ornaments on a tree. You don't, don't feel like you need to stop. We're about to jump back into worship. Here's the thing I want to highlight before our Ports Live location sign off and go do something similar at their location. All of humanity, the very first week we described, was impacted and placed into a family tree where sin tarnished everything through that tree in the garden where Adam and Eve fell. And when you put your faith in Christ, you are entered into, your family tree is no longer the one that you're part of or even the broader, broken, sinful humanity tree. That's not the family tree that marks you. You have been placed into the family tree of Jesus and your relationship with him redefines your past, reshapes the future that you have and redefines what what defines you. And it's not a tree with a piece of fruit. It's a tree that was made into a cross by the God of the universe who's crazy in love with you in such a way that there's no words I, I think I could even put to describe how scandalous, how amazing it is that God, who came from sinners, came for sinners, and whatever your story is, he hasn't forgotten you, he loves you, he has plans for you, And the best, I think, and I hope is yet to come for you. And even if it's not, if you're a believer, it is in heaven. And so we're going to worship him one more time with two more songs as we end 2019 at the porch. Let's go.